You know, it's it's wonderful that the Kingdom Conference has been able to successfully share the the power and the messages of God's word together this week. The upheaval that's gripped our world in the last six months has been a very tangible reminder, hasn't it, of our mighty God's ability to transform this world in an instant. And and in our study this evening, that's actually what we want to focus on together. We want to focus on that on that tangible reality of God's power to transform the way in which this world operates and to do so in a moment of time. And our objective this evening is to see how, how real and tangible that hope is. A hope of a time when this entire world will be converted to accept the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, our hope is not some sort of sort of ethereal thing, like a little wisp out there. The Bible has clear and, and powerful detail about what will transpire after the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And so, God willing, this evening, that's what we want to be able to focus our minds on as, as something which gives us such a, a reassurance of the reality and the near fulfillment of our hope together. Now, I'd like us to, to commence this evening by just sitting back for a moment and, and, as it were, lift your eyes from the screen and focus off in the distance and just contemplate what this world is like that you and I live in together. Cast your mind over this world and the people in it. Let's start with the mighty, the presidents, the prime ministers, the dictators, the kings that rule over this world. Just think about their behavior, their values, the level of their respect for God, their willingness to submit to God's requirements and the instructions he has in the word. Think about the rest of the ruling classes. Think about cabinets, about senates, about congresses, about all of those that rule in the governments of this world. Think about the religious leaders of this world and their opinions and their obsession with their particular view of what is religion and, and who and what God is. Think about the scientific aristocracy of this world. Those who in their egotism and those of their slavish followers think that their explanation of the origin of life is more accurate than that given by God who created life in the first place. Can you see any of those people, any of them willingly submitting to the return of Christ and the laws of God when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. All right, well, what about the general populace, the ordinary people, men and women, the sort of people that you and I know well? Think about all of the people that we interact with in daily life. The deep-seated, ingrained philosophies that characterize the human race today their views on human rights, their perspective that they have an inalienable right, men and women, to choose their own lifestyles. Think about a postmodern world, a world in which there is no right and wrong, where the fool believes in his heart that there is no God. Can you imagine any of those people, any of them, voluntarily submitting to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you struggle to see that happening? Well, if you do, it's going to be a bit of a challenge for you. Because God willing, it's our role 
in the future, in God's grace, to be part of converting those same people to accepting the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God willing, as constituents of Christ's army, that is going to be our role. Simply put, this is the biggest upheaval that this world has ever seen. When I was younger, I used to feel that the, the concept of a thousand years of unending worship in the kingdom seemed a little flat, a little bland, perhaps a little featureless. But what I've come to appreciate is that the thousand years is going to be very busy. And when we think of what will be involved in trying to transform this world and the way in which the hearts of men and women work and their belief in God and everything that entails, the 1,000 years is going to be exceedingly busy. We can understand why it will take a 1,000 years to fill this earth with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh. And of course, that's the purpose of the millennium, of the kingdom itself. So tonight what we want to do is to explore that and to clothe it with some reality based on what scripture tells us. All right, so how's this going to happen? Well, in the first place, unfortunately, it's going to involve some fairly violent activities and it is going to involve warfare. Why warfare? Isn't, isn't that rather distasteful? Isn't that a bit messy? It isn't warfare rather extreme? And here's where we realize that as Christadelphians, we are not pacifists. There are times, there have been in the past, and there will be again, when the world fights against the things that God holds dear. And in those situations, warfare will be necessary. And after all, remember, of course, the fact that when this begins, the world will already be at war. Because the nations will have gathered in war against the city of Jerusalem. I'll just read to you the words we're familiar with, but from Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 2. Behold, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And then shall Yahweh go forth and fight against those nations. And it's going to be during that battle, the battle of Armageddon, that Christ and the saints are revealed to this astonished world for the very first time. It's when the world will realize that there is a new and, and unknown force, something they don't recognize, which is manifesting itself for the sake of the Jewish people, saving the inhabitants of Israel. And Christ and the saints will very decisively overthrow the armies that have gathered together in the land of Israel at that point in time. Now, the outcome of that battle we know well. It's very succinctly summarized, isn't it, in Ezekiel 38, which we read so frequently in our public addresses. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. It's the words of Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 23. Now, brothers and sisters and young people, can you, can you imagine the perplexity that this is going to create in our world. Can you imagine an incredulous world trying to come to understand who this new force or power is that's been mysteriously revealed on the mountains of Israel? Who are these people? What is this mighty power that is ostensibly Jewish, or at least seems to be interested in supporting the Jewish people and has now just stunned their collective armies? <laughs> 
That's phase one of our conversion process. But before we look at phase two, it's good for us to note two divine principles. And I'd like you to come with me, please, to the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 26, where there are two very interesting divine principles noted and made clear. Isaiah chapter 26, and we're going to read together from verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 of Isaiah 26, With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Let favor be shown to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of Yahweh. Now, there are two very insightful observations in those two verses. The first is that if we show favor to the wicked, they won't learn. Verse 10 makes that very abundant, abundantly plain. So, for example, if we were to go to the president of the United States or any country for that matter and show them just an excess of, fa of favor, will that help them to learn? Do you think that will make them more godly? You know, it's a divine principle that if you show favor and blessings to a wicked person, it actually entrenches them in their wicked ways rather than restraining them. So simply pouring out blessings upon a godless world will not achieve the objective that's needed. And that's the second principle that we read together in verse 9, that it's when God's judgments are in the earth that then the inhabitants of the world will learn the ways of righteousness. It is going to take judgment, the process of judgment in this earth for the world and its inhabitants to learn. They need to understand that, yes, this way is acceptable to God, but no, that way is not acceptable. And that's what God's judgments are designed to achieve. And that helps us understand why it is that God's power will need to be revealed in a raw form in the earth in those days. However, if it's your role to encourage the nations to submit, and if you know that it is going to involve a phase of raw power and judgment, and yet you know that our God is not willing that any should perish, before you unleash that further judgment on the earth, what would you do? Wouldn't you want to make sure that the world has, has some warning? That there is a message extended to the world entreating them to submit? Surely we provide, provide people with, with an opportunity to submit, to perhaps educate them in some way. And that's phase two. And that's recorded for us in the book of Revelation. I'd like you to come with me to Revelation chapter 14. It's to a passage that we know as the Midheaven Proclamation. And you may have heard it called that in the past. And there's a good reason for that, as we'll see shortly. Now, the context of Revelation 14 is Christ and the saints after the kingdom has been established in its initial form uh, in Mount Zion. And in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 14, we read, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. 
saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. In those little verses there, brothers and sisters, the word, the word angel simply means a messenger. This is a symbolic messenger, a representation of the hosts of Christ, conveying a message to this world. And you'll note that this angel is described as flying in the midst of heaven. Now, in Scripture, the idea of the heavens is used often as a symbol, and it's used particularly as a symbol of the ruling classes, those who rule over the population of the earth. So in this symbol here, we have God's messengers who are conveying a message to those who are in the ruling classes, but we can tell from the message that it's a message to be shared with all the people of the earth. Now, I love the way in which this message is described here in Revelation chapter 14 and, verse chapters, and in verse 6. Notice it's described here as being the everlasting gospel. The word everlasting here is the Greek word aeon, the idea of an age or a time period. And here it's used, of course, as a, as a, as a representation of the time period of the future age or the kingdom. The word gospel is one we're familiar with. We all know what it means, don't we? It means the good news. So these messengers are preaching the good news of the kingdom age. It's a wonderful message, brothers and sisters and young people. This is an opportunity for this world to learn about Christ, about a time of peace and plenty, of righteousness, of justice, of oppression being ended. This is the good news of the kingdom age. And that's the message which will first be preached to this world. It does, of course, contain a warning. Fear God and give honor to him because the hour of his judgment is come. Now, isn't this exactly the message that this world needs? It's a message of hope, and yet it's also a message that makes it very clear that they need to submit to the commands and the rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder how long it will take for us and the rest of God's holy messengers to get that message out amongst the nations of the world. Will that be a phase of some days? Or will it be months? Or will that process take a year? What an extraordinary process to be involved in, to get the everlasting gospel, the good news of the kingdom, spread and shared with all nations of the earth. How would you feel calling in on the prime minister or the president of your own country? I can just imagine those of you in the UK uh, excuse me, Prime Minister Johnson, do you have a moment, please? I'd like to have a word with you to describe these events and, dis and, and, and to, to discuss these events that have been taking place in the land of Israel. What a fascinating task the angelic messenger of the Midheaven Proclamation will have, as described here in Revelation chapter 14. All right, so we're involved in conveying that good news message, the happy message of Christ's kingdom. How do you think the world is going to respond? Well, we know from Scripture that a few nations will respond in a more positive fashion, but most will not. 
and particularly those will not who have a strong anti-Semitic bias. Those who have always, down through the centuries, hated the Jewish people. They will be incensed with a visceral hatred for the fact that a Jewish person has arisen to seek the interests of the Jewish people. And I'd like you to come with me back to Psalm 2, a remarkable passage, a truly remarkable passage, back to Psalm 2, where we have an extraordinary description of exactly how these nations will react. Now, Psalm 2 was picked up in a number of places in Scripture, both in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles, and, and elements of it are applied to the first work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we read through the Psalm in its entirety, we find that it's a, it's, it's a really remarkable description with extraordinary detail of exactly step by step by step exactly how this nation will respond to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the timing of Psalm 2 is made clear for us if we look at verse 6, where God says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So the time period of, of, the, of the events in Psalm 2 is after the Lord Jesus Christ has been established in the kingdom, sitting upon the throne of God in Zion. The kingdom has not yet occupied the entire globe, but it has begun. This psalm is, is, is pitched just after the message of Revelation 14 that we looked at before. Now look at how the nations of the earth will respond. Verse 2 or verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The NIV translates that little phrase, let us break their bands and cast away their cords as let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And sadly, that's how many in this world will view the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't really sound very appreciative of the good news of the kingdom age, does it? Chains and shackles? That's exactly how this world will see the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you think about it, that's how most of the people in the world see the truth today. Just a bunch of chains and shackles. And so we shouldn't be surprised at this reaction of the kings of the earth. You know, I, I can imagine them snorting in indignation. How dare you try and impose your, your religious bigotry and bias on us and our rights? Don't you think that's exactly what they're going to say? So at that point, how's God going to respond? Well, we're told in verse 4, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. Yahweh will have them in derision. But he will also be exceedingly angry. And so it says in verse 5, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me half a moment. <clears throat> and then he'll vex them in his wrath and in his sore displeasure. And that's when he decrees that he has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. Then as we look at the flow, in verse 7, we actually have the Lord Jesus Christ making a decree. 
Yahweh has said to me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This is Christ establishing the grounds for his authority. Yahweh's given me this power, he says. Yahweh has said to me, verse 8, Ask of me, I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Just note those words. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. And the Lord Jesus Christ conveys to the kings of the earth the authority that he has vested in him from the Almighty himself. And then in verse 12, a pointed warning is given. Perhaps this is a warning that we'll be delivering on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. A warning to the nations. Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed or happy are all those who put their trust in Yahweh. And that's the warning that will then be given to these rebellious kings. So how will the nations of the earth respond at that point? Well, I'd like you to note the little description in verse 2. This is a group of people known as the kings of the earth. Now, we don't have time to turn it up this evening. This evening. It may be something that you can look at in your own time. But the, the exact response now to this message of Psalm 2 is described for us very clearly in Revelation and chapter 19. Because it describes in detail what happens when the kings of the earth, exactly the same group, the kings of the earth and their armies and the beast of Europe gather together to fight against Christ and against the armies who follow him. Tragically, that will be their response to this message of Psalm 2. And the inevitable outcome, and it's described in Revelation 19, is the overthrowing of their armies. And as verse 15 says of Revelation 19, in a direct reference to Psalm 2, he will rule them with a rod of iron. Well, that brings to an end this phase of judgments. This is the Battle of Europe, as it's actually described, uh, sometimes described as the grape harvest, or the, it was the great vintage, uh, as it's depicted in Revelation 14. But our real interest tonight is what happens after that point. How do you change the way in which people think? Once their leadership and their armies have gone, now we've got direct access to the hearts and the minds of the people of the earth. But the big question, the more challenging question, is not how do you overthrow their armies, but how do you convert the way in which men and women think? How do you change their hearts so that they welcome the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ? This is actually where the role of the individual saints will come to the fore. You may recall in Revelation chapter 14, it spoke of a message that was going to go to them who dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Now, that's a really interesting phrase. It's actually a scriptural theme. It comes up quite extensively in the book of Daniel and again throughout the apocalypse and, of course, other places in scripture as well. Now, we won't turn it up, but in Revelation chapter 5, the song of the saints is recorded for us. And I'm going to read it to you. Revelation 5, starting at verse 9, they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, 
and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on earth. So who's singing here? Well, this is clearly the redeemed. What's their role? Well, they're kings and priests who reign over the earth. Where have they been gathered from? Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So the saints that are there in the kingdom age will have been taken from, from every kindred, every tongue, every people, every nation. So when you need to send somebody to Korea to talk to the inhabitants of Korea about the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would you send? Logically, saints from Korea. If you wished to send someone to Samoa, to Bangladesh, to Ghana, to the Philippines, to Iran, to Australia, to Pakistan, to Russia, to Georgia, or even to New Zealand, there will be saints from every one of those countries immortal in the kingdom age. So give some thought, brothers and sisters and young people, to whom you might be sent. Probably back to your own country. Perhaps to the people that you work with, your colleagues at work. Perhaps to people you went to school with, or even your neighbours. But there will be saints from every kingdom of the earth. Now just think about this. Since the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, when have there been saints? in every corner of the earth. Even on islands like New Zealand or Tonga or Samoa. People in places like Russia or Georgia. And remarkably, it's been God's work in the last 50 years which has spread the gospel wider and wider and wider until now truly there are people from all kindreds and all nations and all tongues who will be able to be there in sharing this work of conversion in the future age. It's interesting to know that we won't just be kings, but also priests. The book of Malachi, chapter 2, verse 7, says the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. And it will be our role as kings and priests of the future age to teach people, to teach them the laws of Yahweh. We know from Isaiah 2 that nations will come up to learn the laws of Yahweh because the word of Yahweh and the law of Yahweh will go forth from Jerusalem. But can you imagine how long it's going to take to change the way in which men and women think? One of the things that will help is the change of a language. We're told from Zephaniah chapter 3 that then Yahweh will turn to the people a pure language so they may seek Yahweh with one voice and one heart. It's to unite people a language of worship. There's a big hint there in Zephaniah 3, you may be aware in verse 8, that it will probably be the Hebrew language. And there'll be elements of religious worship put in place in every country to change people's hearts. Now, of course, all of things that these things are going to help, but we're still left with this question. How do you change the hearts and the spirits of intractable people? How, how are we going to humble this world so that it welcomes the rule of Christ? How do you change people's hearts? And there's a most wonderful section of scripture, a most, a most beautiful section of scripture, which tells us exactly how Christ 
will humble the hearts of this world. And it's embedded in a rather obscure section in the life of Joseph, which was read for us this evening by way of introduction from Genesis and chapter 47. Now, you may have heard that the life of Joseph is a, is a wonderful, a beautiful type of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so it is. In fact, it's one of the most remarkable examples in Scripture. When we start at the beginning of his life and track all the way through, we find that the life of Joseph is a, an extraordinary pattern in all its detail of the later work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know the story of Joseph quite well from Sunday school, don't we? We know about the dreams. We know about Pharaoh's dream. We know about the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of famine, the way in which Joseph gathered all the food in the seven years of plenty into the storehouses to feed the world afterwards. But are you familiar with this block of verses, which was read for us this evening in Genesis chapter 47? Because it describes for us how Joseph distributed the food out to the nations of the earth. You know, when, when Joseph was elevated by Pharaoh, he was given the name Zaphnath Paneah by Pharaoh. In Egyptian, the name Zaphnath Paneah literally means the savior of the world. And that's what he became. Now, we won't look at it tonight in detail, but the foundation of our story is actually back in Genesis chapter 41, which describes the dreams and describes the way in which Joseph was elevated to a position of power. But note this carefully. This is a work which is supervised by the saviour of the world after he had been rejected by his brethren, after he had ascended out of the prison house and being raised to glory. This work involved bringing out of Egypt through a covenant period, a seven-year period of plenty, food or corn, which is described in verse 49 of that chapter, as being corn like the sand of the seashore. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? Doesn't that make our minds think of the promises to Abraham? Now, this food is then stored up in storehouses, and we're told that it's in every city. The food's stored away for future use, to be brought out at the right time to provide salvation to the rest of the world. Now, it's not our topic tonight, but if you look at it in your own time, you'll find that it's a fitting symbol of the gathering in of the saints. Little communities gathered together in little storehouses as part of the Abrahamic seed, gathered in as the sand of the seashore for multitude. Little ecclesias of the faithful gathered in throughout the world from all ages over the vast centuries, storehouses of good food ready to be shared with the inhabitants of the earth in a future feeding of this globe. And those storehouses have been carefully prepared at the hand of the saviour of the world, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're waiting. They're ready to be used, to be utilised when food needs to be shared and provided to a Gentile world. Because brothers and sisters and young people, we need to understand that there is a time coming when famine will descend upon this world. And the end result of this famine in Genesis chapter 41 through to 47 was that Pharaoh ended up owning everything in the land of Egypt. All assets, all possessions, all money, all land, every man, woman, and child. And it brought about a state of affairs where people were grateful and submitted themselves to the rulership of the great king. 
This is indeed the story of the conversion of a Gentile world. And this was achieved, this objective was achieved through a process of a remorseless, grinding famine. Now, in Genesis 41, we are told how this famine affected the world, and it's clearly an international event. In verse 54 of that chapter, the dearth was in all lands. In verse 56, the famine was over all the face of the earth. And in verse 57, all countries came into Egypt to buy corn because the famine was so sore in all lands. Now, as the belt of hunger begins to tighten, an erstwhile self-sufficient and very independent people start to worry. Where do we go? What do we do? How are we going to feed our families? What's our escape from this dire situation? You know, when everything's going well in life, we might worry about perhaps, can we afford to buy a new car? Or where are we going to go on holiday this year? But when the wheels fall off our plans, as they do from time to time in life, suddenly our focus on our priorities changes. How do I feed my family? How am I going to live? Now, brothers and sisters and young people, hasn't this been graphically demonstrated to our entire world and the countries in which we live in the last few months during the COVID process? You know, it's ridiculous, but in this country, you couldn't buy toilet paper. It was all snatched off the shelves by a panicking populace. And you couldn't buy seeds for vegetables. Everybody was terrified they were going to need to plant their own, and all seeds disappeared off the shelves. Why? Because there was rank fear concerning the basic necessities of life. Now, brothers and sisters and young people, and I want to say this slowly and clearly, look at what is happening around us and learn. What we're seeing is a foretaste of what this world is going to experience. Because here we're a happy and prosperous people in the land of Egypt, suddenly confronting the stark realities of life. Without food, people die. It's the starkness of the reality of life. Now, these people don't have the answers. So after casting round, they turn at long last to the only person they can think of, to Pharaoh, to the monarch, to their king. And in verse 55, the people cry to Pharaoh for bread. And what does he say? He says, well, see that man over there? See Zaphnath Paneah? Go and ask him. And what he asks you to do, you do. Find the saviour. Go to him and ask. And what he tells you to do, you do that. Can you feel a scene being set here, brothers and sisters and young people, for a grand work of converting all the land of Egypt? There's a mighty hand here which is moving global events in order to achieve his purpose. Now, to see how the, the story unfolds, we're going to turn to, to chapter 47. But before we do, I want us to note one thing here in chapter 41. In verse 55, verse 55, it says that they cried to Pharaoh for bread. Now, the word bread there is the Hebrew word lechem. It's the normal word for bread. You might recognize it in Bethlehem, the house of bread. All right, let's go now through to chapter 47. And we're going to pick up the record as we did this evening in our reading in verse 13. 
Genesis 47, verse 13, and there was no ah, no bread in the land. So this is a signpost. It's telling us that there's something happening here in relation to bread. It's a story about bread. Now, are we sure about that? Well, let's test this. In verse 13, we're told that there was no bread. In verse 15, they ask, can you give us bread? In verse 17, there's bread being given in exchange for cattle. And again in verse 17, he feeds them with bread for that year. In verse 19, can you buy us in our land for bread? There is no doubt this is a story about bread. The lessons that are driven home by this relentless story are lessons about bread. Why bread? Well, obviously, first of all, it's a basic necessity of life. You know, one of the best ways to attract someone's very earnest attention is to remove the basic necessities of life. But think about what we know of the scriptural significance of the element itself, of bread. And at this point you say, ah, people of the earth, read your Bibles and understand what the theme of bread is teaching you. What a subject to base a conversion process on. What does bread represent in Scripture? I'm going to read to you the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In fact, no, let's turn it up. Let's all turn up. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. This speaks of the bread that God provided for Israel in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and commencing at verse, verse 2 for connection. Thou shalt remember all the way which Yahweh thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to test you, to know what's in your heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of Yahweh doth man live. Now, can you see the relevance of this to the story of Genesis chapter 47? It's exactly the same process. First of all, he suffers them to hunger. And then he uses the very subject of bread to teach them that man doesn't live by bread alone. And note carefully the link here between bread and every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. Because that is the key to our story about bread. The connection between bread and every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. Now, in your own time, you're going to have to look at these passages, but follow the theme through Scripture and see the Scripture grow. That's why, for example, in Amos 8 and verse 11, we have God sending a famine. It says, not a famine of bread and a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the word of God, because there's the spiritual counterpart, that bread is a representation of the word of Yahweh. In John 6, a marvelous chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ, in that discourse about bread, makes exactly the same point to the Jewish people. He said, you seek me because you ate the loaves of bread and were filled. All you can see is the logical and tangible bread that you put in your stomach. Oh no, he says, there's much more to this thing. Labor not for the meat or food, as it means in verse 27 of John 6, that perisheth, but for the food, think bread, which endureth unto life everlasting, 
which the Son of Man shall give unto you. Or then later in verse 33, he said, This is the bread that cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. This is a life-giving bread. It's sent by God to preserve life. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and his message of salvation, which is the word made flesh. It's emphasized again in Isaiah 55 and verse 1 and 2. So Deuteronomy 8, Amos 8, John 6, Isaiah 55 all make exactly the same point. There is bread which keeps us alive. And it's not normal bread. That bread is merely a type. And the message here for the populace is as you struggle to stay alive, learn the lesson about bread. God provides the real bread of life. Eat it and you won't die. Now, in the future, God's going to use all the tools at his disposal to bring about a change in the heart of man. Will he use famine? Well, we know that he will. We're told so in Zechariah chapter 14. Nations that don't submit will have no rain. All right, so under that understanding, let's go to Genesis 47 and pick up the record. Uh, starting in Genesis 47 and verse 13, we read that the famine was very sore. Genesis 47, picking up the record in verse 13. The famine was very sore. The land of Egypt and of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. There is no way out. So in verse 14, the people hear that Joseph has food, so they come to buy bread. You know, I find verse 14 fascinating. There is no narrative here described. There's no discussion here described. They simply come and say... It's a business transaction. I've got money. I don't need your charity. Thank you very much. I can buy my own food. It's a business deal. So in their time of need, they reach for their own resources, their own resourcefulness to buy themselves food in verse 14. And the little statement in verse 14 that Joseph gathered or gleaned, as it literally means, he gleaned up all the money found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, and carried it into the house of Pharaoh. So just note this. All of their wealth has been used up, but it's not going to be sufficient because they can't buy salvation and life with their own money. Now, verse 15 starts to emphasize the point remorselessly. You see those opening words of verse 15? And when money failed. Now, isn't that a fascinating expression? When money fails. Can you imagine anybody in this world today thinking of a time when money fails? That's impossible. Money talks. We all know that money is the thing that makes this world mind, uh, makes this world work. But, you know, brothers and sisters and young people, we need to be very conscious of the fact that we'll, there will come a time when money will fail. And to make the point, it's repeated again a second time in verse 15 and again in verse 16. I will give you if your money fails. So money's gone, and now they've got themselves a problem. Actually, now they're in serious trouble. This is a life and death matter, and now they can't deny it. They have to confront it. There is no choice. <sighs> We're going to have to go and ask for help. But look in verse 15 at how they ask for help. Can you sense perhaps a, a little touch of arrogance in what they say? In verse 15, they come to him and they say, give us bread. 
For why should we die in thy presence? Because the money's failed. The words in thy presence actually aren't there in the original. It's simply, give us bread. Why should we die just because money has failed? You see the way in which they're thinking? Okay, we know we're in trouble. We know we don't have money, but we believe we're due it. You owe it to us. Why should we die? We have a right to life. This is not fair. We have a right to life. Can you see the way in which this world thinks? It's, it's a world that's full of human rights. And they demand, give us bread. That's our right, because, of course, our, li our life is sacrosanct. That's the most important principle of all time. So Joseph says, all right, you want food? Fine, but it's going to cost you. Now you're going to give me your cattle. The word cattle means livestock. We're told in verse 17 that that's all their horses, their flocks, their sheep and goats, and their herds, and their asses. So now they give all of their livestock in exchange for bread. Well, that's fine for one more year. And then the food runs out again. It's a relentless process which they're involved in. And hunger surfaces again. Gripping black starvation faces the population again. And now these people are on their knees. They're learning the hard way. They're learning the principle of Matthew 16, verse 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul or his life? So where are they going to turn now? Well, they have no choice. Now they come back to Joseph again, and now look at the difference in their tone of voice. Verse 18, when that year was ended, they came unto him the second year and said unto him, we will not hide it from our Lord. Now there's openness. We will not hide it from our Lord. How that our money is spent. My Lord also has our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. They say our money, our kisef or silver is all spent. Kisef in scripture is used as a symbol of redemption, the silver of redemption. Their silver is all spent. They can't save themselves. And a broken people say, there is nothing left in thy sight, panim, in thy presence. Now, brothers and sisters and young people, you can feel for these people, can't you? You can hear broken voices saying those words. Here is a people who are rendered to nothing. And they say to the saviour of the world, we have nothing left as they come to ask him for help. And they say, we're going to die here before your eyes, literally in your sight, as it means, in front of you. And not only us, they say in verse 19, but our lands will be desolate as well. This is not a good outcome for you either. Total desolation through all lands. And you can hear a beseeching spirit now in those words. So brothers and sisters and young people, look at our own personal lives in that context and ask yourself, is that how God changes hearts? Is this what converts people? Just merely catastrophe. 
Is it harshness? Is it simply the cruelty of an inexorable hand just crushing the life force out of people? Is conversion achieved by a succession of overwhelming disasters just destroying people? Is that the message that comes out of this simple story? Is that how God converts hearts? And we know, profoundly, we know that the answer is emphatically no. Yes, God does send trials, pressure, and difficulty in our lives. But his aim is not to crush us into subjection. His objective, his means, is to deliver people in love. And you see, the point of this exercise is, brothers and sisters, that this world needs more relief than just food. It needs the bread of life that brings eternal life, not just some temporary reprieve. And the motive behind this is love. Now that becomes very obvious by an intriguing little statement in verse 17. It's the end of verse 17. It says, and he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. Now, if we look at the context of the rest of the verse, why does it need to add, and he fed them with bread? Isn't that a little superfluous? Isn't that fairly obvious? Well, not when we look at the word fed. It doesn't literally mean fed. It's the Hebrew word nahal. It's a rather special phrase. It actually means to lead. He led them with bread. The theological word book says of this word nahal, it denotes a shepherd's loving, concerned leading of his flock, especially those with young. It is this loving, concerned, shepherd-like leading that typifies God conducting his people. It's a phrase we come across, brothers and sisters, in Isaiah 40, verse 11. When speaking of Yahweh as a shepherd, it says, He shall gather his lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That's actually the spirit of this ruler. That's how he cares for them in their time of need. And then, when this process finishes, something rather unexpected happens. Something unlooked for that they did not anticipate. Because in verses 23 and 24, this wonderful ruler turns around and then he gifts them, unexpectedly gifts them more bread, or actually particularly the seed of the corn. And he provides the seed back to them and instructs them to sow and to reap. He gives them the wherewithal to sustain themselves in the future. He gives them, unlooked for, the seed that they would need to be able to sustain them in ongoing life in exchange for a tithe, which is paid back to Pharaoh. And you know, brothers and sisters, that's the pure genius of the story in Genesis 47. Yes, sure, it was a difficult and hard process they went through, but shining all the way through like a beacon of light is a theme of love. And they come to understand the tenderness of a loving shepherd who has actually provided for them in the storehouses the means to save them from certain death. He sees those who are hobbling in the way. He gently leads those who are with young. They see the concern and love of a great shepherd who guides them through the valley of the shadow of death. They see a man who places in their hands the means of sustaining life. Brothers and sisters, young people, it's that love 
And it's that understanding on the part of the populace which helps a conversion, a change in spirit. And then look at their beautiful response in verse 25. You know, it's lovely in its simplicity, but it's rich in its earnestness. They respond. They have saved our lives. Let us find grace in thy sight, O my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. What an extraordinary change. Now, brothers and sisters and young people, that is the genius. That is the magnificence of the way in which God changes the hearts and minds of men and women. It shouldn't surprise us, should it? We know. We've experienced it ourselves. And in God's grace, as the kings and priests of the age to come, it will be our privilege to share that blessing with others. And so, brothers and sisters, one of the most stunning, one of the most remarkable conversions of all time will be brought to a successful conclusion, breathtaking in its power, overwhelming in its comprehensiveness. And the wonderful thing for us this evening is that you and I have been called to be the kings and the priests that are involved in that conversion process in the age to come. And then stop and think about this. Of all the people who have been called down throughout the ages, we are probably the last cohort to be called. The very last cohort. Our countries are in the midst of an enormous convulsion, which is irrevocably changing the world in which we live. Is this just a foretaste? Is it just a precursor? We don't know. Or is this perhaps the beginning of the end for the world as we now know it, and the beginning of a better one? Whatever, brothers and sisters and young people, it certainly is a witness for us. It's God's direct testimony to us that he has the power and he has the will to bring this world to its knees and then to bring them through a conversion process. And God has invited you and I to be part of the priesthood that becomes involved in that conversion process to teach this world to love the same God that you and I love. Do we appreciate how extraordinary that privilege is? Let me read for you the words of Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. And in the grace of our God and through the love and the sacrifice of his son, that is our calling. May it be, brothers and sisters and young people, that we appreciate the richness of that hope, that we share it with others 
that we make sure that there is food in our storehouses. Let's not put our trust in the resources of this world. We know the time will come when money fails. Let's put our trust in our loving and ever-living God. And may Yahweh bless us all in our preparation for that glorious time. Thank you. Thank you.